In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would all the kids and teens up through the 11th grade please come forward? some of our high school interns and they're up through the 11th grade so thank you hi everybody hi welcome glad to be here so last week we talked a little bit about jeremiah the prophet and he received a call from god and and jeremiah said but i'm only a boy and god said don't worry i'll help you i'll take care of it well today our old testament lesson is about isaiah the prophet, who was also quite young when God called him. And Isaiah would go to the temple and go, come back home and go to the temple and come back home like, like church. And one day he went to the temple and this is what he said. He said, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And the angels cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Isaiah saw that, heard that in church. Now here's what I want to say about that. A lot of people come to church thinking it's just another event that they go to during the week. Like I go to school, I go to the grocery store, I go to a concert, I go to church, I go here, I go there. But I want, you, I want to tell you that church is not just another event. This is a privilege and an honor and an obligation to be in the presence of God. To come to church and to be in the presence of God. And we come like Isaiah, not knowing what God is going to reveal to us. It might be on any given Sunday, the words and the sacrament and, 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 the, and, and, and the fellowship that we have with one another, which is all wonderful. But one time when we come here, he might... Let us see him high and lifted up, filling the temple and seeing the angels crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I mean, we should, we should come to church expecting that because God works that way, but he reveals it when he wants to reveal it and when we're ready to receive it. I've had people tell me that, that they see angels surrounding the altar up here on Sunday mornings. I mean, I don't see that. Do you see that? But they see it. They've been given that vision by God. And, and, and God reveals to whomever God wants to reveal. When we come to church, expect God's power to be, to be present, God's grace to be present upon you, expecting God to give you what you need to worship him the way he wants us to worship him. We don't come to church just to kind of sit and listen and, 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 and just get by we come to church to worship God Almighty who is seated high on his throne and the angels surround him crying holy 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 are you God we just sang holy 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 in the first hymn didn't we to God we were singing to God it wasn't just a song we were singing we were singing and praying to God 
So expect, when you come to church, expect God to be present in your heart to help you pray more earnestly, to help you recognize him and however he wants you to recognize him. And go away from this place filled with the Holy Spirit so you can go back out into the world and tell the world all about the greatness of God. That's what church is about. Okay? Thank you for being here. Thank you all for coming up. I like your hair, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I need, a, I need help. You want to help me? Sure. Okay, you can do it. Well, there we go. Thank you. Father Michael? Thank you. Oh. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is indeed Father Michael. I'm the Associate Rector and Youth Minister here at St. Timothy's Anglican Church. I just want to say welcome to anybody who may be joining us for the first time here this Sunday. I just want to let you know that in the narthex or the lobby of the church, there's the uh, welcome desk. And on that welcome desk, there's a whole variety of things that you are more than welcome to take home with you. We have Bibles. We have events going on here at the church. I want to draw your attention specifically to a folder or a welcome packet we have for newcomers that has information about the church. Uh, hopefully it'll answer any questions you have about the church, but if you have any remaining questions, feel free to come to myself or the other clergy or leadership here and we will do our best to answer your questions. Today, this morning, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians, our epistle lesson for today. We're gonna be in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have a Bible, encourage you to get your Bible out. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pews in front of you. We should also have the scripture inserts from the, in your bulletin. You're more than welcome to have that in front of you as well. I think it's important to have the text in front of us as we walk through it and we glean what the Holy Spirit has in store for us this Sunday. Before I jump into the sermon proper, I want to spend just a minute or two and set the context for our uh, sermon for today, the context in which 1 Corinthians was written. If we don't like our words taken out of context, let's not do the same thing to the Bible. Scripture can speak to us in our context, but in order for it to do so well, we need to understand the context in which it was first written. It can speak to us in our context, but we need to understand the context in which it was first written. And so a couple things that we can glean from 1 Corinthians is a lot of us here in this room know that 1 Corinthians is one of two letters that we have that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that are contained in the New Testament. But what you may not have known is that there's this long lost third Corinthians, right? What we can glean from first and second Corinthians is what happened is that Paul, who planted many churches, planted the church in Corinth, actually spent not the longest time that he ever spent in the city, but uh, certainly up there as far as his length of time spent in the city. He spent a lot of time in Corinth planting this church. When he left to go plant new churches in a variety of cities surrounding um, the Greco-Roman world, uh, he started hearing rumors that the church in Corinth started straying from the original gospel that was preached to them whenever he first arrived. And so he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, a, a, a quote-unquote pre-Corinthians, for lack of a better term. And he wrote this letter, checking in on them, seeing how they were doing, and they responded with that, from that letter with a letter of their own to Paul, 
And it was in that letter that a lot of his uh, hesitations were confirmed. They were, in fact, believing some uh, false things about the gospel. And so what we have as 1 Corinthians is actually Paul's response to that letter that the church in Corinth wrote. So if you're reading 1 Corinthians, and for lack of a better term, it feels stern, it's because he's trying to correct some, some things that were going on in the Corinthian church. And I think that's just important to know as we jump in but we probably have gathered is that there's only 16 chapters in Corinthians. And so if we're going to start in 15, we're towards the end of what he's talked about. And so Paul has addressed a lot of the concerns that he has uh, about the Corinthian church. And he's summing up his letter. And what he chooses to end with is one of his most favorite topics. He spends more time writing about this topic than any other topic in the New Testament. That's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He chooses to end this letter talking about how amazing the resurrection is and how life-changing it has been in his life. And the entire chapter is wonderful, so I encourage you to take the time to read it in its entirety. But just here at the beginning, he sets up this entire chapter by laying out three important things that I want to draw out from the text for us here this Sunday. Three things that I want us to focus on that Paul and the Holy Spirit have for us this Sunday. And the three things is that the resurrection is scriptural. The resurrection is historical. And that the resurrection brings grace. The resurrection is scriptural. The resurrection is historical. And the resurrection brings grace. Now let's dive in. We're going to be in the first four verses. The first four verses starting in 15. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received and which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as a first important that which in turn I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, English teachers and grammarians in the audience, I promise you we're going to get to the end of that sentence, but that's just where verse 4 ends. We're going to get there, so bear with me for a second. As I was preparing for the sermon, I was reading one of my favorite commentary sets that I was gifted. It's called uh, The New Testament for Everyone. It's written by N.T. Wright. He's one of the foremost New Testament uh, scholars of our day and age. She has this great gift of taking complicated themes and presenting them in an accessible and pastoral way. So if you were going to buy a commentary set, that might be a good place to, to start or consider. The New Testament for everyone. And I love the point that he makes about this, particularly these first four verses. And the claim that Paul makes, particularly in verse four, and it says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, your translation might say, in accordance with the Bible. We may have heard that, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures or Bible. And so the question for you and for me here today is what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus Christ died and was raised for our sins in accordance with the Bible? And what Paul does not mean, what he's not talking about here is that we can take a couple proof texts from the Old Testament and pull them out of their context and say, well, according to these handful of verses, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and that's that. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. You can go to the Old Testament and you can look at prophecies that point to Jesus. It's not what I'm saying. That is true. But the point that Paul is making here is that he's read the Old Testament from Genesis to 2 Chronicles. It's slightly different order for him that's different than the order that we have here in our Bibles, but that's the order he would have read. So he's read it from beginning to end. And what he says is that the entirety of the Old Testament that would have been the scriptures for Paul all point to the resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the climax of the story, brothers and sisters. It's what everything has been leading to. And Paul absolutely knew his scriptures. He was a Pharisee. Probably have heard that term tossed around in the gospel. You may not know what a Pharisee is, but a Pharisee was just a group of Israelites, of Jews of the day, who uh, decided to double down on a lot of the various purity laws and Old Testament laws found in the Old Testament. For example, if the Bible says to run one mile a day, they would have run two miles, right? They're th- those kind of people. And they were going to be holy enough to save the people of Israel, and they were going to be holy enough to receive blessing and honor from God again, right? And so he was a, an Israelite's Israelite, if you will. And he studied under one of the most, arguably the most famous, certainly one of the most famous uh, rabbis of the day called Gamaliel. So Paul knew his Bible, absolutely knew his Bible, backwards and forwards, left and right, upside down and right side up. And what Paul says is whenever I read the Bible, now that I've been confronted with the resurrection, I see the Bible and it all points to the resurrection of Jesus. For us, that's Genesis to Revelation. It all points to the resurrection of Jesus. That's the climax It's a victory that has been won and secured that will be culminated one day in the new heaven and the new earth, which we eagerly wait for, but that's the climax. That death has been defeated in the person of Jesus. The resurrection is scriptural. Point two, the resurrection is historical. I promised you where we're going to get to the end of that sentence, and here we go. Verse five. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, as I mentioned At the beginning of the sermon, I do have the privilege of serving as the youth minister here at this church, which means I get to spend a wonderful amount of time with the young people of this church, which I absolutely cherish. And uh, the problem I'm about to describe does not apply to our teenagers. I'm very blessed to have a very honest set of young men and women to, to grow in the knowledge and love of God with them. But I have worked with other youth groups in the past that are not quite as honest as our kids are. And it's really entertaining to the group of like three or four of them that you know they have done something wrong, but you can't quite figure out what they've done. So what do you do? You, you, you separate them. So they're all in you know, different rooms or whatever. Then you start asking them what happened, right? And what happens, inevitably, their story begins to fall apart and one person says another thing and another person says another thing and another person says another thing. And because they're all lying, they're all saying different things and you can quickly figure out that, that something has gone awry right? It's like the game of telephone. Remember this game that we maybe still play occasionally in the youth group? I don't know. 
or play as kids. Whenever you begin with a story and then you have to whisper the story to the next person, then by the time you get to the line, it's a completely different story. And inevitably, one of the more smart aleck kids in youth group says something just completely different in the middle of the story, so by the time you get to the end, it's just completely haywire. I share with you those examples, though, that if you were going to try to, to, to make something up, right, this incredible claim, such as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what you probably would not do is bring more people in on it, right? You'd want to keep that story uh, to, to, to one specific group, like, oh, well, you have to go to Johnny, and Johnny has the story, right? No, what Paul is saying in this uh, collection of verses here is he says, if the claim that I made at the beginning, that the resurrection is scriptural, is not enough for you, which arguably it should, what you can go and do, church in Corinth, is you can go to Peter, and he's going to say the same thing. You can go to the 12, and they're going to say the same thing. You can go to 500 people and they will all tell you the same thing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it happened, that they met him, that it was amazing. If you were making up a story, you absolutely wouldn't bring more people into the argument. Some of the more uh, liberal New Testament scholars that necessarily don't believe in Jesus Christ and yet study scripture, which is an absolutely bizarre world to live in. Even they say that whenever they are confronted with this passage, if you wanted to convince somebody, if you were making up a story and you wanted people to believe it was true, uh, this is not something you would say unless you were absolutely certain that it was true. If you were lying about something, you wouldn't do this. Because what you're essentially saying is that you can check my work. You can go to these 500 people and they'll all say the same thing. The resurrection is historical. It did happen in history. Jesus Christ is still alive today. He is in the presence of God at the right hand of the Father. He is still alive. He is still breathing. He is still eating. And he has completely defeated death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical. It did happen. Point three, the resurrection brings grace. The resurrection brings grace. We're going to be in verse 10, finishing with verse 11. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Now, for those of us who have spent any time studying uh, Paul, know that Paul was once known by another name uh, of Saul. And Saul, as I said, he was a Pharisee. He was an Israelite's Israelite. He was a Jew's Jew. He absolutely knew his Bible backwards and forwards, and he was zealous for the Lord. So he heard about this group of, of fellow Israelites, of these fellow Jewish people that were claiming that that weird guy from Nazareth named Jesus is the actual Messiah and that he was raised from the dead. And we certainly don't know people raised from the dead. And that he certainly wasn't the Messiah because he wasn't the Messiah we all were expecting. So clearly they're wrong. So we have to stamp out this weird sect of Jewish people for the sake of the greater good. 
So Saul got permission to go around and to root out the Christians and to bring them before tribunals and to try to have them executed. One of the more famous examples we have from scripture is the stoning of Stephen, one of the first Christian martyrs of the church, if not the first one. And when Saul is finally confronted with the resurrected Jesus, his life is transformed forever. He meets the resurrected Jesus and his life is transformed forever. He meets the resurrected Jesus and he is presented with grace and he is presented with love and he is convinced of the gospel that is Jesus' gospel and it transforms his life. He's no longer Saul, he becomes Paul and Paul then joins the church and becomes the apostle to the Gentiles and plants all of these churches, brings the gospel to hundreds and thousands of people all because he is confronted with the resurrected Jesus. This is an absolutely preposterous thing for God to do, to choose Saul to become Paul and to plant the church. I was trying to come up with creative ways to like drive this point home to just to show how absolutely crazy bonkers this is that Jesus did this. And the best thing that I could come up with is that if we take the American Revolution, right? And we're fighting the American Revolution and so on and so forth. We all went to grade school. We all know the story generally. It would be like if King George III all of a sudden says, you know what, you Americans, you're right. In fact, you're so right, I'm going to come join the Continental Army and become a general and fight the American Revolution against myself. That would be crazy, right? That would be absolutely preposterous for King George to join the Continental Army, right? And yet, whenever we are confronted with the person of Jesus, the resurrected Christ, preposterous things happen. Grace is offered. Love is offered. Lives are changed. The resurrected of Jesus Christ yearns to meet you where you are and to offer you that same grace and that same love that was offered to Paul to transform your life to transform it day in and to day out and to make you more like himself so that we can go out and spread the gospel to people that need to hear it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings grace. And if Jesus can turn Saul into Paul, there's not a problem big enough in your life that Jesus can't help with. The resurrection is scriptural. From Genesis to Revelation, it all points to the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is historical. It did happen. Eyewitness account after eyewitness account was recorded in the scripture. 500 people, Paul says. It did happen. And the resurrection brings grace to you and to me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.